in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Today, I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from Spokane, Washington, Mr. Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? We are doing well here in Spokane. It's snowy. It's wonderful. How are you? I am fantastic here in Pittsburgh. And joining us today from sunshiny Los Angeles, Mr. Tyler Harlow. You've seen him before on the episode, by the way, for LA Confidential. And now he's back today. So, Tyler, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. And I'm actually very happy to be back. And I'm very happy that I was able to get you guys your number one uh, movie of last year. That's right. It was it was number one in our rankings and number one in our hearts. <laughs> it's such a good movie. Dang it, Titanic. It really is. <laughs> so, so, Tyler, I think you have some exciting news for yourself. Uh, is, is there a project that you want to tell the listeners of our show about? I believe the last time I was on the show, I mentioned that I have a movie review website. Uh, it's afterthecreditsblog.com. I've successfully been able to keep that going for over a year now. Also, uh, started a podcast myself. Uh, it's called For Real, spelled like a movie reel, R-E-E-L, uh, with a question mark exclamation point, where myself and my co-hosts, we sit down and we talk about uh, movie news that have come up week to week, talk about how the industry is changing, whether that's for the good or for the bad, and just really use our movie knowledge to dive into the industry. So if you get your uh, retro fix from us, you can get your really, really up-and-coming current fix from Tyler, and they are a good companion piece for each other then. Totally. So, Tyler, I think we got to get to know you a little bit more, man. I know you're a movie lover, but uh, what's the last movie you saw? It would actually be Underwater. Oh, how was that? Uh, I enjoyed it more than I had any right to. <laughs> okay. I'm just kind of bummed that it got released in January where movies kind of get forgotten about yeah the the first 30 45 minutes solid suspense becomes a creature feature it's very claustrophobic it's it, it, it's a lot better than it has any right to be this is this is a chad movie it sounds like you're an la resident and what is your favorite la film location and uh what movie or movies were shot there i do enjoy watching movies at the uh, Stenorama Dome. It's uh, a couple blocks from my apartment. Uh, the actual last movie that shot a little bit of something there was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, they did the quick little drive-by scene with that in there. It's the only thing that I can think of that was that was shot there. Nice. Perfect. And uh, what is your favorite movie theater snack? My favorite movie theater snack? It's a bottle of Pellegrino and some jelly beans. Okay, okay. Assorted All jelly right. beans? Yeah. What book to movie adaptation did you enjoy the most? One of the ones that actually recently popped into my head, I really enjoyed uh, Mystic River. 
I really like the uh, the author Dennis Lehane. He does a lot of crime, noiry things, and I think that uh, the movie really captured uh, a lot of the things that made that book special. Well, that's fitting for today. <laughs> <laughs> so, today, what movie are we going to do, Brian? Uh, we are going to do Asphalt Jungle. All right. This movie comes out in 1950. It grosses $1 million and a little bit in change after that. So this film barely breaks even at the box office, and it only comes up with a profit of about $40,000. So uh, its reputation is greater than its return from the box office. So it just lands outside of the top 10, and I don't have an easy way of telling you where this movie ranks because it's too old to go for a full ranking. So I can tell you the number one movie in 1950, though, was Cinderella. So IMDb gives The Asphalt Jungle a 7.9, and the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 97%, so pretty high stuff from them. And then the audience score is a little behind it at 87%, which is still very respectable. It gets nominated for some awards. So it is nominated for Best Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, but it doesn't win any of those. The Golden Globes, it comes away with uh, nominations as well for Best Cinematography and Best Director and Best Screenplay, and it doesn't win any of those. So uh, that's kind of was the theme of this shortlist that came in this week, movies that got gypped or underappreciated or should have gotten something, and this movie got blanked at both the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. But it is in the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress, so it, that, that counts for something. Tyler, had you seen The Asphalt Jungle before? I had maybe about a year or so ago. I, I do a lot of blind buying in terms of the Criterion collection, and that was uh, like Fry, I enjoy film noir. I like crime movies, and it felt like a uh, hole or gap in my cinematic viewership. And so I bought it, sat down and watched it, and I really enjoyed it. It definitely lived up to... Uh, what I'd really heard about it. So I'm, uh, I, I'm very, very familiar with the Criterion Collection. It's something that we do a lot of business at work with on. I feel like blind buying is one of the primary avenues to actually collecting Criterion movies because, I mean, there's just such a huge percentage of those that I've never heard of really go for art house stuff. And, I mean, I'm not going to say all of them are really good because there are some misses in there for me. But uh, no, I've 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 pulled some gems out of there that are movies I already like. But I would say it, it's probably sixty five, thirty five, in terms of blind buying to intentional. Nice. I would agree. So Tyler, what was it like returning to it now? I mean, I I definitely uh, looked at it in terms of being able to uh, talk about it a little more intelligently on the on the podcast. I think I got a deeper appreciation for a lot of things and don't want to give away some of my uh, superlatives later of kind of where I thought some things landed that, that really impressed me. But there were a couple of things that I definitely on the, the original watch before this one uh, didn't appreciate as much. So you found that it was a more rewarding watch upon revisiting it? Yes. Brian, had you seen Asphalt Jungle before? Nope, never seen this. After a couple failed attempts at uh, not being able to watch this for free, I just bit the bullet and ended up buying it on iTunes. I'm not sorry I did. This is this this is a worthy addition to the collection. 
What was your take on it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. I mean, it was a very enjoyable movie there. I mean, there's some stuff about it that isn't right up my alley. And I, I'll fully admit, I struggle sometimes on older movies. This was easily one of the more watchable, digestible, older films that I've watched. So it exceeded your expectations then? You were expecting too slow for your taste, but uh, you were entertained? I was expecting, I, I don't think overacting is the correct term, but when you just see the changes that have gone through film and how people acted then versus how people act now, there's definitely like a very visible uh, change in how it happens. And sometimes when I watch older movies, I'm just like, ah, just it's harder to suspend that disbelief uh, watching uh, something, say, pre-1970 versus something post. So a lot of my the stuff I own, I mean, a huge percentage of it is probably 1975, maybe even 1980-plus, and I don't have a lot of older films. Uh, so I, I was happy to add this one, too, enjoy it the way I did, and it has rewatch, about, uh, rewatch value for me. Yeah. Tyler, do you feel like it's holding up well to today's times? I do. I also share a very similar feeling to Brian about acting, especially early acting. I, I think this was mostly one of the better acted older movies I've watched. Okay. Yeah. As for me, I'm like, Brian, this was my first time to it. I was excited when it was recommended for this, and I watched it my first time for the podcast, and I watched it a second time again. Uh, pretty much immediately after because I rented it and I had 48 hours to do it. So I didn't get to space it out as much <laughs> as I like, but I, uh, I I digested it fully twice. I got to say, this was this. I wasn't really sure what to expect. So I got in there and I found this was far more intricate than I ever expected. So I, I, I found the characters to be rich and uh, I did enjoy it. And I, I do like going back to old movies because they're like a little time capsule. And it's interesting to see the evolution of film and filmmaking and so uh, I often get a little bit excited when uh, a, a, one of our guests like Tyler comes on the show and challenges us to go back. And I, I'm excited to do that today. So it, this movie, I think, does merit watching today. It's, uh, I think a lot of old movies merit watching today. So I, I think if you slow down and uh, are a little bit patient because this takes a little bit of time to set in, uh, it, it's very rewarding. And I really enjoyed this. So uh, I should warn people, though. We are going to spoil this movie. So if you haven't seen The Asphalt Jungle from 1950 and you're spoiler-adverse, watch out. There will be spoilers that lie ahead from this point. We'll return from these messages and get into it. Greetings, Gotham. It is I, Bane, here to take your ears from the corrupt, away from the oppressors of generations who have kept you from hearing about the movies you love most. We give it to you, the people. None shall interfere. Listen as you please. The show is yours! Step forward! Those who would serve to an army of movie lovers will be raised. Start by storming the gates of iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and give the show a rating and review. Like the show on Facebook, email at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Movies will be watched, insights will be shared, fun will be had. Great movies will endure. The Retro Movie Roundtable will survive. This is the instrument of your liberation. Gotham, take back your podcasts. And we're back. From this point on, there will be spoilers that lie ahead, so beware. If you haven't seen The Asphalt Jungle, you may want to go watch it and then tune back in and listen to the rest of this. Now, Tyler, 
For those who haven't seen the Asphalt Jungle since 1950, do you want to give people a refresher? So we open with Doc Erwin Riedenschneider, recently released from a seven-year stint in prison, who shows up on the doorstep of Kabi, a local bookie, and tells him that he has a plan to steal at least a half a million dollars in jewelry and needs funding to hire a crew. Kabi takes him to Emmerich, a lawyer who is lured by the idea of a large hall since he is secretly broke. And he agrees to fund the heist and help fence the jewelry after with cash on delivery. After they leave, he then plots a double cross with Branham, where once he has been brought the jewels, he will say that he doesn't have the money to pay them yet and will get them to leave the jewels with him. Then he would skip town, go to another country, most likely with his mistress Angela. Meanwhile, Doc assembles his crew. Family man Louie to be the safecracker, bartender Gus to be the getaway driver, and country boy and small-time criminal Dix Handley, who needs the money to buy back his family uh, horse farm in Kentucky. While the heist begins as planned, things begin to go awry after they detonate the safe door and set off all the alarms in the surrounding buildings. A security guard discovers them trying to escape, and in the ensuing chaos, Louis is shot. Gus takes Louis home, where his wound proves fatal, while Doc and Dix go to rendezvous with Emmerich. Emmerich's double-cross, double however, doesn't go as planned, with Doc and Dix catching on, and when they refuse to leave the jewels, Branham pulls a gun. Dix, who also gets shot in the process, kills Branham, and they leave still in possession of the jewels to dispose of Branham's body, which unfortunately for them is quickly discovered. A city-wide manhunt forms, which results in Gus and Cobby being arrested, and thanks to a confession from Angela, Emmerich is about to be arrested at her apartment, but instead he commits suicide. Running out of options, Doc and Dix go to hide out with Dahl, who is, in fact, in love with Dix. Realizing that they are on the brink of being caught, they agree to split up, as it might prove to be the only way that they get out of the city. Doc, who gives some money to Dix and Dahl before taking the rest of the jewels, hires a taxi to take him to Cleveland. However, he is caught at a diner by two police officers. Dix and Dahl decide to head towards Dix's family farm and actually make it before Dix succumbs to his gunshot wound and dies. Yeah, heavy ending on that one, right? Yeah. Let's hop into that one right away. What did you guys think about the end of this movie? I didn't see that coming. It's never a good idea to shoot dicks. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get the first one in there. And I, I think the there was a time in movie going, it was more in the 70s, but I, I, I was happy to see that it kind of happened earlier in the, in the 50s with this one, where everything just kind of ended happily. And in, in the 70s, the, there were these kind of like uh, nihilistic and kind of bummer endings where nobody really gets what they wanted. I think it was kind of fitting given the kind of the, the blind greed that all these men had where they just couldn't stop once they were in. I think it was a fitting ending. Yeah. In a way, I wondered if do you think that they're trying to send a message that crime doesn't pay like this, this, this easy ride or the taking the shortcut to get rich? It destroys your life and those who you love around you. Was anybody just super confused on how, like, when he first gets shot, he's fine, everything's good, then he starts bleeding, like, a little bit into his shirt, and then all of a sudden it's like, that guy's lost so much, he doesn't have enough blood to fill a chicken. And I'm like, 
that 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 escalated really quickly. My guess is he was just trying to tough it out. No, I get it, but he beat the crap out of a cop. Is like if you're bleeding from a gunshot wound, like it's either a slow bleed or a fast bleed. I don't think it's a slow bleed until you need to be dying in her in order to further the movie. Like that that was one of the the little catches I had with this. It's like oh he got nicked and then later on. Oh my God, he's bleeding out. And I'm like, whoa. So what what would make this better for you? More blood or less blood? Like, okay, if they had sewn him up and they're like, you're going to be fine. He goes, oh my God, his his sutures have ruptured. He's bleeding everywhere. Like just Uh two lines could have fixed this. Okay. And it was just like, hey, oh, it's just a scratch. In fact, it was such a scratch that he put on clothing without any bleed through, goes another 40 minutes of movie. And then he's like, oh, there's a spot on my shirt. Looks like I'm bleeding again. Gushing blood. Oh my god, he doesn't have enough left. Like it's just a flesh wound. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, what 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 exacerbated this? It's not like even he got like a fist fight or something after that to exacerbate it. It's just like he's like, "Oh, I don't feel so good." Yep. Dying. It's not that bad. <laughs> I think in I, I did some reading about the the production in this. They seem to kind of have free reign filming this. Like the studio didn't really step in and like make a lot of demands. There were there were a couple, but like they they really kind of had a unimpeded time filming this. They could have very easily because I know that this happens too. They could have just not shot it and tried to fix it in post. Or that was maybe an uh, intentional thing. Tyler, why do you think that this movie is worth returning to now? Why do you think it made it to that Criterion collection? And why are you thinking that uh, we're recommending it now and talking about it now today here in 2020? Well, and this was something that I was kind of surprised to find out. This actually started the caper subgenre of crime thriller movies. The, this was the first one to kind of do this. And I think that coupled with the gorgeous black and white cinematography, the uh, copy that I watched on Criterion is gorgeous. It's absolutely stunning. And it it's shot better than some of the movies I've seen today. I, I definitely think that that helps. Okay. And Brian, what do you think makes this enduring why would somebody from 70 years later come back and watch this one well who doesn't like crime i mean this is a huge uh genre of books right now true crime especially has been very popularized uh by netflix by hulu uh like so many like to catch a serial killer it's a it's a huge thing right now so even though this is fiction you know there's this is a very plausible caper that could have been pulled off back then I think this is a this is something that really never goes away and never really uh, ages poorly uh, outside of the technology used in it. Yeah, and to Tyler's point, you mentioned that this was kind of the start of the heist genre. Yeah, I did look a little bit more into this. So even as far back as 1903, there was a heist movie called The Great Train Robbery. The whole film it's like 11 minutes, but it shows uh, the protagonist robbing a train, and in the 40s, you do have some other movies where criminals are a central plot point of it, but 
you're right to some degree where the asphalt jungle is the first one that introduces the players involved. They plan it out. They execute it. Things go awry and they have to, you know, and then the aftermath of it. And so it is in a way not necessarily the first of its kind, but in a way it's the major point, the springboard, or it sets the tone or it's the bar, so to speak for which the heist genre is based on. And so the heist genre apparently goes on to become, I didn't realize this until I started to look up the number of heist movies, but come later, a decade later in the 60s, the heist genre is a much more popular genre. And I, I noticed there was a resurgence of it. What would you say, like in the uh, early, two, the 2000s or the O's? Yes. Um, I'm trying to think what... You're just saying that because there was literally a movie called Heist. Yes, with uh, <laughs> Gene Hackman and... Heist, Snatch, The Italian Job, Inside Man. Um, there's just, there's a, there's several of them. And I, I mean, there's more of them the more you think about it. Yeah. And some of them are, I mean, that was the uh, Italian Job remake. So that we were even kind of already kind of looking into the past to, to try to get more money and reintroduce those those films back into the, uh, the public conscience. Yeah, like Ocean's Eleven would be another example like that. Well, here, but here's the thing. I think if you look at any decade, you're going to have a plethora of these films. I, I wouldn't call it a resurgence in, in the in the thousands specifically. I mean, heck, even Ant-Man was a heist movie. Uh, now You Can See Me involved magic. All of the Fast and the Furious movies. Inception was a heist movie. I, I just think that they just work it in a little bit more seamlessly to where you're not, you don't necessarily peg it as like, oh yeah, that's a heist movie. Well, in a way that all of those movies that we have just now described, in a way, kind of have roots and can pay tribute to in some way, or I should say, or should be grateful for this movie, which in a way laid the groundwork and paved the way. Sure. And it was edgy for the time. You know, people found the notion of these uh, people to be, or these criminals, to be the the protagonist of the movie to be a little bit on the repugnant side it was interesting to see some of the old old reviews of saying like these are bad people doing bad things i don't know why anybody would enjoy this and so it's one of those things where today it is a central focus of a lot of movies and we've come to accept it but in a way it was a bold leap for the time totally i think the, there's even a quote from uh louis mayer the head of mgm who i believe released this who echoed like these are terrible people this is not a movie everybody's gonna want to see yeah and i don't think they are terrible and one of the things that i think that's interesting in it is they're portrayed in such a way that each character is kind of given a sympathetic understanding view even the worst of them you're kind of seeing the position they're in why they are motivated to put themselves in a better position what better life that they're shooting for themselves they're not just saying they're not just the bad guy from like despicable me saying i'm going to steal the moon <laughs> so they're not just stealing for stealing's sake or for stealing the sport like they all had a story behind them and that was like i said they're not they don't come away as being despicable which is why it was hard for me knowing that pretty much everybody either gets arrested or killed in this it's a little bit tougher at the end because you've grown to like each of these characters and i think a lot of that comes from you you might ask why someone might want to rewatch it i think the reason that that reaction happened back in the 50s is because they weren't used to it. And now right. it's something that you can go back and appreciate about how that kind of stuff ended up layered into their characterizations and how the actors were directed, how they portrayed the characters. I think that that level of sympathy would help. Tyler, 
you did some looking at some of the other Oscar winners from that year because we talked how this one kind of got blanked out. Do you think that the repugnance factor of these bad people doing bad things, if you will, or as one reviewer put it, do you think that that affected its getting the awards or why do you think that it got blanked at the awards? Oh, man. <laughs> Again, I also know how to pick them when, when other powerhouse movies have come out. But when you have other movies like All About Eve, you have Sunset Boulevard that came out this year. I think that makes it tough. Like, and movies also like The Third Man. Oh, that was so good. Like that that was all this year. And it's just kind of like you just kind of put your your hands up to to quote Ricky Bobby, I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> it's just like I get it. It's unfortunate that, you know, this movie while it did get some nominations, didn't feel fully appreciated for its time. And now people do look back on it. It's on the Criterion Collection. It's in the, uh, what do you say? It's in the National Library? Yep, the Congress, yeah. You know, like the, there's that level of appreciation that it has gotten in the 70 years since. Brian, do you think there's anything about this that didn't age well? I mean, outside of the clearly, like when it was filmed stuff, I mean... You can say, yes, it's clearly dated, but I wouldn't say aged poorly. Well, let me say this. The thing that I think you're going to have the hardest time bringing people to, especially as time continues to go forward, is the treatment of women. And I think that's just one of those standard comments for, the, you know, these 40s, or in this case, 1950, but it's still, you know, things don't change from one night. Uh, this 1950s, 1940s era, the women in this are treated like dirt. Yeah. It, but you can't change that. That it's that period like you if you were to remake this movie today and still have it set in the 1950s that's exactly how you should have them act like that that would be doing a disservice to history if you had them act any other way than how they acted in this so whereas i get your point watching it might be difficult because that's not the proper way that we treat women these days but to, to hold to the standard of, of, A, when this film was filmed, and if you were to remake it using the same time period, you would have to do that. No, that, that's a great point. I just feel like it makes it, a, it pulls, pulls me out of it a moment every now and then. It's a little harder to like the character of Dix when he's basically treating Dahl so badly. I mean, at one point he's like, are you going to shut up or get me a drink or something like that? I'm like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like... Well, um, I think that there's a fair amount of aloofness from him on how she really feels about him. First off, um, I think he harbors some level of annoyance with her character. And I think it's only later when, you know, he's he's dying. He's pushing her away because he doesn't want to see her get hurt and he doesn't realize the level of her feelings toward him. And I think that had that fully come around without mortal peril happening, then his treatment of her would have changed. Now, obviously, I'm not saying it's okay to treat someone that you don't realize is in love with you that way. I'm just saying that I, I don't think that you really saw his character give a, a real portrayal. Like, he, she's kind of an annoyance to him at the beginning. Like, if you're going to be here, make yourself useful. But in a way, like I, I know, and I, I've myself found myself commiserating with her. I was like, this, this girl's awesome. She's really nice, and she's like, she's doting over him, like he's a celebrity, and she's like, you know, doing whatever she can to be grateful for, for this. And 
I, 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 to some degree, sat there wondering, and I mean, I'm just wondering, is this dude really handsome or something like that? Because she is just like Plato, and I'm sitting there going, like, she's, she's got a lot going on for her. She's, you know, Jean Hagen's the actress. She's a good-looking lady. I'm sitting there going, like, can't you get somebody who's nice to you? <laughs> he's, he's, he's very thick. I mean, I, and that's something that gets brought up in several different ways throughout the the movie. Like, you know, he's just considered the muscle. He's not considered by any means to be a brain here and i think that there's just a level of aloofness that comes with his character that misses subtlety and this is one of those places but for every for every time that he misses subtlety like this he is able to draw and shoot a man who already has his gun on him so it's like there you see what his use is and even though you know he's not you know, putting any time or energy into, you know, he's one of those, like, I ain't got time for women, you know, that kind of thing. Like, he's just not thinking about it that way. That's fair. That's fair. Now, Tyler, this character actually makes me think of some of the things that Brian is saying. It reminds me of Bud White, the character from LA Confidential in some degree. Do you see a little bit of similarities between, like, the, these two characters? I do. The difference is the the movie of L.A. Confidential goes out of its way to say, like, he specifically doesn't like it when women are hurt or abused or like it like he's quick to anger with it. And it kind of really sets him off. So I think that that's the the difference is I, I think he's a lot smarter. I think Bud's a lot smarter, even though they're both essentially just kind of muscles. That's a good point, and I think that's probably why I liked Bud a little bit better, because he did have that warmth to him. But uh, I think we did see it to Brian's point towards the end of this movie. I just had a hard time putting my arms around him due to some of that, and it wasn't just the times, as you were pointing out. Like, you're right. I shouldn't just put it all on that. A lot of it is his character being, I guess, on tunnel vision, focused on getting back to his farm so much that he didn't care that there might be a woman who is worth the time of day falling right into his lap. Well, if I can tie it around to another crime noir movie we watched in Ice Harvest, it was like Randy Quaid's line when he was talking to, I'm blanking on her name, but the main female character, where he was like, which one of them are you going to choose? The dick with no brains or the brains with no dick? Yep. Yeah. When talking about uh, Billy Bob Thornton and John Cusack's characters. So I feel like it's a recurring theme in these. Like, you got Doc, clearly the brains. You've got <laughs> dicks clearly the muscle um so it's just one of those things where i think this is a a standard in crime caper films where you have people who are brains and then you have people who are guns yeah and now brian why don't you give us actually a rundown of the cast all right so our cast uh reads as uh, sterling hayden who plays Dix handley we have lewis calhern as alonzo d emmerich we have Gene Hagen as Dahl Conovan. We have James Whitmore as Gus Menezi. We have Sam Jaffe as Doc Irwin Ryden Schneider. Uh, John McIntyre as Police Commissioner Hardy. Mark Lawrence as Cobby. Barry Kelly as Lieutenant Dietrich. Anthony Caruso as Luis Savelli. Teresa Seeley as Maria Savelli. Uh, and then uh, we've got uh, Marilyn Monroe as Angela Finlay. Ever hear her? <laughs> yeah, I think that's twice. Willem Willie D. Davis as Timmons. Dorothy Tree as Mae Emmerich. Brad Dexter as Bob Branham. 
and John Maxwell as Dr. Swanson, buried way down there at the end because that's where he was in the movie. <laughs> I think what's, we got to talk about this one right away is uh, the cover of the movie now has Marilyn Monroe on it. Of course, originally she wouldn't have been on the cover and she was not a household name. This is early in her career and it's a relatively small role. Like logically speaking, she would probably build, you know, but well, no, she is clearly build lower here. She went on to become the biggest name and the biggest star of anybody in this movie uh, over time. And we all know what the legacy that she had with the tragic ending and everything like that. Tyler, what did you think about Marilyn Monroe in this early performance? I mean, she's not in it that much. And she kind of has the the token mistress, hidden mistress role. I mean, she she was good. I for For a second, I almost didn't recognize her at first. I was like, oh, yeah, she's in this because she she is kind of what you said she's kind of buried in there but she was good it was one of her first starring roles all i can associate with her character now is when she uh when she's talking about them running away she's talking about her bathing suit and she actually says the word yipe yeah that that's all i can think of is her just going yipe <laughs> I, I don't know why well, there are two versions of how she gets this job, and there's not settled on upon this day, but uh, one is an employee of MGM's talent department suggested to John Houston to try Marilyn Monroe out, and he immediately recognized her as the perfect for the role. He added her as this sensual figure to add to the movie. And the other one says, and this was more supported by the MGM archives, uh, it has Monroe being a dark horse contender for the role, and Houston had reportedly already chosen another actress named Lola Albright for the role, but Albright had had recent success in a movie called Champion from 1949, and uh, she didn't want such a small role in a crime melodrama like this. So Houston tested out a number of other starlets, but Monroe stayed in the running long, long enough because of vain persistence from MGM talent director Lucille Ryman Carroll. Brian... Obviously, Monroe's a icon. Did you like her in this? I don't want to say that this was a throwaway part, but like, if you had made the wife in this scenario a little bit more, I'm happy with our status and money instead of being ill and made him less philandering, you could have just as easily not had her in this at all. Like if you, you could have brought the wife in a little bit more as the, uh, yeah, do it, do it. We can't be broke. We can't be poor. Do it. I just didn't think she did anything for this movie. Okay. I, I actually had to some degree the opposite. I, I myself am so spoiler adverse. Once I know that we're doing the movie, I try and know as little about it as possible. So I, I got into it and yes, I did happen to see the cover and for whatever reason, what I think of Marilyn Monroe maybe, like Tyler said, was a little bit later in her career. And so when I when I came across her, I, I because she was so young, my first thought was like, ooh, who is that? She's very striking. And then I realized, oh, that's Marilyn Monroe. And I, I honestly kind of had this moment of, I think she would have grabbed some attention at the time. I mean, she must have because she clearly went on to build her career and move forward. But uh, I, I actually think in a movie where Gene Hagen had definitely by far the front leading actress role, I think she did have presence in this, even though she, maybe I'm giving extra attention to it, knowing who she would become. But yes, she is playing kind of a gold digger kind of policy. She's not a nice person in this, but the dress that she's wearing at the end and whatnot, she she is an icon of her time. And I think it more than shows why she was in this movie to me. So I, early movie, small role, like you said, but I think she's got it. Maybe I'm wrong here. And, and maybe I just have one, one aspect of the quote gold digger nature uh askew 
but she just seems really aloof. Like, I think she just likes having money spent on her. I don't, like, I always see Gold Digger more as, like, I'm just with this guy until he dies, and then I get the money, and I can go do my own thing. She just seems like, oh, look, pretty things, wee! And, and I think that's why I'm less apt to think her character adds something to this movie. And I, I, I am with you to a large extent. I mean, oftentimes when it's a real person and they behave in such a manner, it doesn't matter how pretty you are, you become unattractive to me. I always think of Kim Kardashian as kind of one of these characters of mm-hmm. just like, I don't sure. like you and how you conduct yourself, the words you say or how you act or the people you associate yourself with. So I don't care what your, the picture of you is. You have become unattractive to me by your behavior. But somehow when you're acting, I can... I. I, for whatever reason, have necess- sometimes I go the other direction where I'm like, oh, she's the bad girl or, 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 or oh, she's playing a character. And to some degree, I'm still drawn to the actress doing it. So, uh, you know, if she did that every single time and she became typecasted as that, then I'm with you 100% there. This is very possibly the first Marilyn Monroe movie I've seen. Really? I can't swear to that. Some like it hot, maybe? I'm fact checking myself right now to make sure that that's correct. My recommendation is to make your second one uh, Some Like It Hot because that is a very funny movie. I was going to say, you haven't seen Some Like It Hot. I've seen the stage performance. That is a great movie, and she's a delight in that as well. So, John Huston and uh, war hero Sterling Hayden were both members of a committee uh, for the First Amendment, which opposed blacklisting alleged communists active in the film industry. Now, Huston wasn't a communist himself, but Sterling Hayden was. And it was one of those interesting things where Sterling Hayden wrote in his autobiography that Houston met him in uh, D.C. during that protest event. And he came up to him and, again, protecting subversives in the film industry. And Houston said to Hayden, I've admired you for a long time, Sterling. They don't know what to make of a guy like you in this business. And then he went on to pitch the movie to him, saying, now I want you to do this part. The studio does not. They don't. They want a top name star. And uh, they say that you mean nothing when it comes to box office draw. And I told them there aren't five names in this town that mean a damn thing in the box office. Fortunately, they're not making this picture. I am. Now, let me tell you about Dix Handley. And he goes on to say that this is a character that's an everyday man uh, like you or me who just don't fit into the groove, who don't fit the mold. And that's why he liked him for this. And I found that to be an interesting story about how he found this role. Earlier, when I when I kind of uh, referenced that there was some acting that didn't work for me, uh, Sterling Hayden actually was one of them, and it took me a little while to to get used to his delivery. And it, I think it, I've kind of settled a little bit more into it now that we've kind of talked. Like, you know, he just kind of was this brute of a man who was just there for muscle and kind of had like these short, not very intelligent answers to things. But yeah, no, I, I think he he was the one that kind of really only had like the delivery type issue for me. Now that I've kind of had time to let it marinate, it it uh, it feels better than than when I had originally watched it. I don't know about you, Brian, but when I watch these older movies, I somehow enjoy stepping back in time and the fact that the way of speaking and the diction is a little bit different. I actually kind of just relish in the difference and I'm enjoy seeing the old cars and I enjoy a, a trip back in history. But for Mary, she said some of these, uh, some of this approach to her felt like overacting. Did you have that at all? Well, that, that's kind of what I brought up in the beginning of this. Uh, speaking of which, just an addendum here. I did fact check myself. This is the first Marilyn Monroe movie I've ever seen. I have not seen some like it hot. 
apparently the Broadway production of that is coming in 2020, so I've got it confused with something else. And uh, so, yeah, this was the first uh, uh, acting Monroe part I've seen, so I guess I do need a little bit more background on it before I can cast too much of a stone. But I still don't think this part was really, you know, all that necessary. Like, if this was cut out, I don't think it would have been missing much. Now, as to your question... Because um, I remember you saying that pulls you out of it sometimes. Did, did this movie yeah, do that? I don't want to call it overacting. It's just a difference in how acting was done. Like, people were considered very good actors doing this. But acting has evolved and changed and been perfected over time. And it'll continue to get better. In 30 years, people will look back at movies from the 1980s and 90s and be like, oh my God. So <laughs> I don't want to say, yeah, yipe. Yipe. I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, I'm harping on this specifically, but yeah, there is, it's like, why are they always so angry? Like they are really, it's like they get excited to do the acting part. Like, all right, now you're mad. Well, hey, why, why, why are you telling me this? Why are you doing me this way? I don't understand this. I don't deserve it. It's, don't bone it, it's me. It's almost like they're like, and now show you're angry. And now storm out. And I mean, it's just, it's very cookie cutter to what they're supposed to be doing at the time. And it's just what acting was back then. So I'm trying not to put too much of an emphasis on, on why it is like that. And that's kind of, that it is, it pulls you out of it a little bit, but it is, it's, it's important for that time. And if you want a little bit of both worlds, that's where you go see something like LA Confidential, where it's more modern acting with those sets, with those cars, with that dress, you know, with that dialogue. And if they've done it right, then you should still get what you want out of it. And I, to some degree, I think, I don't know if you agree with this, Tyler, but I think a lot of it, we talked about this in the Singing in the Rain episode, because that movie is about the transition from a silent movie to movies. And I think the evolution of film came through the theater acting. And so when you're on stage, you should overact to some degree so people can get you up in the back row. So your facial expression might be overreacting to some degree in those old silent movies. Uh, and they seem like over the top now. But as things transition, they become a little more toned down, a little more organic. But to some degree, I think the voice side of it, as the talkies came on, uh, that they evolved a little bit slower and in terms of the voice because there was the audio component that had to mature as well. And so do you feel like this is just a matter of if you walked around the 1950, this is to some degree how people talked or do you feel like this is an evolution of how films were made? I would say it's an evolution of how uh, films were made. I will say it's it's been very interesting. My girlfriend Wendy and I have been finding videos of this old show called What's My Line on YouTube. And then there was some of that way of just talking back then, uh, which which has been very interesting and kind of eye opening to see. But also at the same time, I would lean more toward the evolution of of film as well. I do. I do as well. And I've talked to some people who are around and can remember 1950, whether it be older relatives and whatnot. And yes, people didn't just go around talking like Jimmy Stewart. So there was a way that that was crafted into a brand. Nobody talks like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart talks like Jimmy Stewart. Well, 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 uh, hi. <laughs> What's the big idea? Jerking me around like that. You boned me. So, <laughs> but it's in a way that's charming in a, in a way, like I said, it's like a whole other world to me when I go back to it. So, sorry, this movie is based on a 1949 novel. So the book only came one year before the movie. 
by W.R. Burnett, and the story tells of a jewel robbery in a Midwestern city, generic Midwestern city. I kept wondering, where is this? <laughs> I didn't find a lot about the book, but the film adaptation was from director John Huston and uh, screenwriter Ben Maddow. In his autobiography, John Huston noted that uh, he consulted heavily with W.R. Burnett several times during the development of the script, and Burnett gave approval of the final screenplay. So this is all blessed from the creative mind who came up with it. And uh, I couldn't find much about the book. Could either of you guys? I couldn't find much. Uh, this is kind of like one of those, I'd say the closest thing you can pinpoint this to in terms of what we have now are Harlequin romance novels. This is a very similar version except mystery title. It's I always call mass market paperbacks. Those are the small airplane size books that you see at uh, newspaper stands uh, when you go to the airport. This is like an even smaller version of that. So these were like back pocket novels that you could just grab, entertainment, and then, you know, discard or keep however you wish. I could always count on the manager of a bookstore to tell me about the book. Thank you. That's always a, that's always a big gap in my research. No problem. It's also insanely expensive. Anytime we do one of these movies, I always like to, you know, just see what, what I could get it for and do I have time to read it. Uh, a paperback for this book currently is going on Amazon for $231.33. Dang! So next time you think, oh, I'll just don uh, donate this box of books to the library, if it gets big 60 years later, or gets big at the time, and then 60 years later someone goes to look up how much that book might go for, yeah, it's quite a bit. One other thing, a used hardcover of this is actually a little bit cheaper. Uh, it's going for 60 bucks, but it is a newer printing. The paperback format was the original format, and that's why it was going for so much. I was wondering about that. I was sitting there going, how's the hardback no, it's a, it's cheaper? A, but yeah. you explained it. Long story short, keep your books. Yeah. Keep your bucks, man. That's why all those rich people in all these old movies, like uh, Beauty and the Beast or whatever, live, live in these castles with all these books or whatever. They just have all these books and they sell one book at a time when, later on. And that, that, that's where their fortune comes from. If my wife could hear this right now, she'd be downstairs like, you're donating half your books tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this movie is directed by the great John Huston. Now, John Huston, for those of who have been following along the show, did The Maltese Falcon, who I really enjoyed that. And he also did The African Queen. He is a titan in the industry. Tyler, do you like John Huston as a director, and do you like him here? I do. And interestingly enough, he is probably more famous or most famous as an actor as well. He was in Chinatown. But I think he's got an amazing eye cinematography-wise. He was able to get some of that sympathy from that we talked about that wasn't appreciated for the time, but now now is he was able to get that sympathy and create that with this unsavory band of characters and honestly like you 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 cared what happened to him you bought into the story of dicks reminiscing about the horse farm and you could see like you could see it like that that is his driving force and i think that that partially came from the performance but that came from houston also really understanding these characters and crafting a uh, a thrilling movie around him yeah and it's it's got a lot of high points direction through it now brian we did the maltese falcon earlier you were a fan of that movie if i recall did you see any similarities from john houston in terms of his approach between maltese falcon and this which this came later obviously i mean there are always upgrades uh when you come with a a, a period of time between when movies are, are produced 
I have a hard time taking as much away from the skill of um, cinematography and how lighting or effects grow. Um, watch older movies and then you watch something that's new. It's such a stunning leap in what we are able to do now that it's harder for me to recognize the subtleties of older movies when it's not something that I sit down and watch on the regular. But uh, really, these little time capsule films, as you put it, that we typically do for our podcast, you know, it's 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 just those are the ones I'm watching. No, and that's fine. I uh, I I noticed some similarities though, in particular, because in Maltese Falcon, I noticed they loved these behind the shoulder shots. And they did a lot of that in this, by putting the camera and putting the head of the back of the person and sometimes like putting a whole person away from the camera. You don't see a lot of that now. And they kind of put that out of focus in the foreground, put somebody else in the background in focus. So he does a lot of that here. And he he was a big fan of that. And again, Maltese Falcon came nine years earlier, so he's honing his skills here. And I just thought that was one of those things where the camera puts you in that character's place and it puts you at their height. Actually, well, I'll tell you, one of the things I did notice about this film, and you know, this is just more of a camera angling piece, I felt like there were a lot more shots uh, percentage-wise in this movie that were at the hip or below, like either shot from knee level, like while people were sitting, or from like a corner of the room while a group was talking, than I typically see in most films. That's a good point, and he did... A fair bit of that in Maltese Falcon as well and he's he goes to it a lot here one thing he did in Maltese Falcon though is it's a it's kind of unnerving they shoot up at you like up your nose a little bit uh like the fat man in that one and uh they don't do that here in a way I think he wants you to feel on edge like I don't feel easy about the situation I don't know any of these shady characters in Maltese Falcon whereas here he wants you to have that sympathetic view of them so he's putting you at the table with them as they talk and you're down on their level and I think you're right about that eye perspective and kind of that waist level. I think that if you go lower, you're, you're more off put and you tend to not like them as much. Or maybe it's more of a, a, a spy piece where it's like, if you're in the corner of the room, it's a more of a clandestine, you're getting an eyewitness view to this super secret meeting of, uh, of uh, henchmen and characters of uh, nefarious means. Yeah. And uh, they also go to these really high levels too like as Lonnie is leaving his conversation with his wife and goes into the stairs and goes down this beautiful turn of the camera so there's a lot of nice transitions that uh, Houston will do a lot with one or two shots that you could you might need to change camera angles three or four times in another movie and you would actually have cuts and stuff like that so he's very skillful with it I, I even just love the opening shot of the police car driving along and then him hiding behind the pillar as it goes by it's it's just stuff like that that just like that like fills me with like excitement and like happiness and like I think it really sets the scene for what movie you're watching. That yeah exactly right first thing in the movie I saw him do that and I was like dang well I think we're gonna be in for somebody who knows how to make a movie on this one. Now the film was colorized by Turner Entertainment in the 1980s. Now Tyler, did you watch the black and white one or did you watch the colorized one? I did watch the black and white one. Are you a fan of colorized movie or are you going to choose the black and white every time? Oh, I'll, I'll do black and white every time. If it wasn't if it wasn't filmed that way, I uh I won't seek out the other version. How do you feel now, Fry? Uh color versus colorized versus black and white. If it was filmed first in black and white, I'm going black and white. 
like a hundred percent of the time. Okay. Now why is that you guys? It's the way that the director wanted the story to be told They they could have filmed it in color if they wanted to, they chose black and white and it, it's more inherent to the genre and type of movie that he's making as well. Yep. And what about you, Fry? Much the same. I, I don't feel like all that much is added with color. I would say the only time where I was a little fascinated with uh, black and white versus color is when they did some of uh, color additives to the old World War II footage um, in terms of a depth of a battle and that sort of thing and actually seeing you know battleships fire cannons and that sort of thing. I did feel like color added something to that. But that's all stuff that I've watched already in black and white. So I just feel like, you know, footage is footage. Um, I don't think you need color uh, to really add that much to a film. Now, there are things that have used color to add something. You're, you know, Sin City with red lipstick and red Converse All-Stars, where they're using color specifically to add flair or panache. But um, I overall for this, it's just not, it's not something that I was like, oh, it's just a deal breaker if I can't watch it in color. I'm with you guys. I watched the black and white version, and I'm glad I did. I think part of the noir aesthetic is the black and white, and there's a lot of contrast in it. And color is wonderful, and you can do a lot with it, as Brian said, but contrast is a beautiful value and gradation and contrast that you can play with there, and Houston's so good at it. So appreciate it in black and white. If you want to ever watch the colorized version, make sure you watch the black and white one first. I'm 100% in alignment with those guys. And it's, I, I think you also kind of forget about the power of, of black and white. Uh, it's not really used a lot today. This past year, there was a movie that came out called The Lighthouse. And seeing it in black and white with the cinematography and just everything like that, it it transported me away. And I think, yeah, I just, I just think we t- uh, take for granted some of these older classic movies that were shot in black and white and the effect and power that they can have. I'm glad you brought that up because I'd completely forgotten about it. Um, I bought that movie specifically to watch with my brother over uh, Christmas. Uh, It was just something we had talked about. We both loved Witch. And um, so I bought that movie. We watched it one night. And man, that movie is nuts. And you're absolutely right. If that movie had been in color, it would not have nearly as the creep level to it. It was, oh, man, I can't say enough good things about it. Now, don't get me wrong. At the end of the movie, we were like, what the hell did we just watch? Like, you know, and this is over Christmas, too. It's not. Yeah, it's totally in a good way. It's it's in the same way that when I left the movie, Witch, like, the people I went with, we were all just kind of looking at each other going, whew, that was a, that was a thing. <laughs> so what did you guys think about the suicide scene? This was a touchy thing for the time. They actually had a hard time. The censors had a conniption over Emmerich's suicide when, as it was written in the original script, they rejected a scene where he was to write a short letter to his wife and then take a pistol out and kill himself doing the deed. The suicide was just like a no-no at the time. Like, you couldn't put that on the screen. And certainly the thing that made it uh, acceptable was that he wasn't in his right mind. So therefore, he couldn't write a letter because that would be like a premeditated, thoughtful thing. I was like, yep, this is a logical thing to do at this point in time. Again, this is just one of the signs of the time. A suicide was on screen wouldn't have flown. 
Houston said that he ended up liking this version of it better, but I kind of did find myself going like, why don't you write that letter to your wife? Why'd you tear that up? So that's why. I don't know. Did you feel like it actually made it better, Tyler? Yes and no. Because I, in terms of, you know, the sympathy and things like that, I think he, he's been uh, one of the bigger bads of the movie. Yeah, he's the worst of the worst. He's the he's the criminal who cheats on his wife, double crosses people, and then double crosses his his partners in crime. Like, yeah, he's the worst of the worst. I think it would have been interesting to see what he had written because I think it would have been a last ditch sympathy moment. And I I say I want to see what he would have written because I it could have either worked or didn't work. I understand that as time has passed, every decade, every generation has touchy points where they steer clear of one thing or another because, you know, call it too soon or whatever uh, is, is the reason they decide for censorship. I am so thoroughly against censorship it's insane if it's something that exists in the real world then it should be fair game for film no matter how distasteful or off-putting and most of the time the reason you're putting it in the film is because it's off-putting it's because they're in a situation this guy's back's against the wall he didn't want to be poor how much do you think he wants to be poor and in prison (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah like like this is nuts like the whole reason he got involved with most of this in the first place is because he was up against it anyway now obviously i'm not saying any of this is okay or that he's a good person i'm just saying it's like the part in uh in, in uh, howard stern's private parts where they're trying everything to censor him and he's just like no that's what i agree with i agree with no censorship if if a word exists in the English language, it exists in the English language. Deal with it. I like it. Off soapbox, off. And meanwhile, <laughs> I'm still gonna keep. I'm, I'm, uh, we're gonna keep the show a family show. And we're gonna keep censoring you, Brian. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. But generally speaking, I, I'm with you on that one. So. The time for this movie is assumed 1950, and we're located in what I thought it was Los Angeles. And I, I, you can actually see the Los Angeles City Hall in the background at one point. But apparently, this is generic middle America in uh, Midwest somewhere. And, and they never say that drives me nuts for some reason. I always want to know where this is. I was thinking St. Louis. Was anybody with me on St. Louis? Like, I was, I was feeling St. Louis. I, I read or something Chicago. where... Because they were so close to Cincinnati that, or to Cleveland, that it was Cincinnati, like it was somewhere in Ohio. Okay. Huh. Okay. okay. All I right. Mean, that would that'd be pretty close to Kentucky. Yeah, but I feel like it it gave a bigger city vibe, so I was feeling like like Chicago or St. Louis. No, those are both good choices, Brian, or Detroit. But yeah, the the only thing. That would have made sense for a smaller city is how quickly they are able to catch everyone. That's a good point. And the desire to get to Cleveland, which Cleveland at one point was even, I believe, the third or fourth largest city in America. And that's how major it was. So the desire to flee to the big city of Cleveland makes me maybe think that it's not Chicago. 
Well, I just remember the the scene in the train yards, and then you have to figure if a city has a train yards. Like St. Louis is one of the big railway hubs. True. So I was, you know, I was I was taking that route. That's possible. It's it's all speculation. <laughs> it's all speculation. I wish they had just told us. <laughs> Pet peeve. Yeah, and 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 by the way, we were talking about diction. Why does Dix, who's from Boone County, Kentucky, not speak with a southern accent? Small thing that I thought about after my second watch. He has to wash the city off of him first. I did like that line, by the way. Of uh, by the way, I was really sad to see like the 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 new father uh, didn't make it and like got shot and died and stuff like that. So that was sad. But that character, he at one point really drives home the point. And there's this is reinforced visually throughout the movie. But the city that they're in, this this unnamed Midwest city, is not a nice place. It's a very dark polluted nasty place and full of hooligans i don't and um and it was a scummy place and that's kind of interesting because where we are as society does view the city as like this dirty factory place of work and it's not necessarily a place for families you just you just see no greenery in this and that's part of the uh aesthetic this this uh shady activity is happening in this world where the city is like this concrete or asphalt jungle that it even names that and so I like that line where uh, Louis Savelli is like, uh, if you want fresh air for the baby, don't look for it in this city. And uh, that's just very reinforcing of the times. Unfortunately, this leads to suburbanization in the mid-century. And uh, cities are, you know, uh, there's this motion of white flight and leaving the city and the city decays. And that's bad for the city. But um, you do need to keep in mind, like, it's it's a dirty, soot-covered factory like laden place and it does remind me even as nice as pittsburgh is today it's a really wonderful city but uh back at this time in the 1950s like frank lloyd wright came to do a project here and uh he it ended up not happening but uh he said uh he said of pittsburgh he said the best thing to do for pittsburgh is abandon it <laughs> um and i think that 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 <laughs> tone and that feeling you you've it's palpable in this movie i don't know if you guys felt like that is just the noir genre, but I also felt like that's part of the fun of going back to this point in time. No, I, would, I definitely agree. No, so I was I was pondering that for a minute. Um, I guess I have. Uh, I I guess I can understand parts of that point of view to a certain degree. Um, I've never been a huge city person, but I've also never been a rural area person. So. Maybe I'm just too in between the two to to really understand that point of view. Well, again, I don't think the city in today is viewed that way. It's uh, people across the country are actually returning to cities in droves, and the the oh, no, no, generation no. I, I, wants I get... to go back to the city, and they're nicer, and they've re-embraced their waterfronts, yada yada. But this is a whole other world, and you do start to see why in the '50s, like this is the seeds that are planted of like, yep. I get why people kind of wanted to leave this behind for airspace light and to move out of the, move out to the suburbs. And you, you know, like I said, it's one of those things that we criticize for development for happening that way, redline practices and racism playing into part of this. But on the other hand, this is the city environment. It wasn't good. If you wanted fresh air, don't look for it here. And don't look at it in Los Angeles. I'm trying to to put myself in the position that we're talking about in the 1950s. Yeah. You know, I, I was, I was never, you know, I was never an apartment in the big city kind of guy, but I've also never been a uh, cabin in the woods kind of guy. I will say that that has turned somewhat in more recent years. You know, I want to be close enough to be able to do fun things, but also 
have my space. So it's just interesting to, to have the theory, to, to hear about how life was then, and then try to figure out how I would react to it. Yeah, yeah. And that's another part of why the more and more distance you become from a movie, not a period piece, but it was actually made there, and then there's some degree of a time capsule that I love about it. Speaking of time capsules, did you like the uh, the hats, the big overcoats, because clothing's a little bit looser, of these of these 1950 uh you know, outfits that these, that these men are wearing. Uh, I wish long coats would actually come back in a more um, form fitting fashion. Uh, I actually do like long coats. Uh, I love the old Dick Tracy uh, untouchables. Uh, even you can even go with tombstone on this with the, uh, you know, the dusters. I, I, I like coats like this. Uh, it, it's a, it's a fashion that I wouldn't mind seeing come back around. Okay, yeah, that's a. I, I I generally like it too. For some reason, I don't know. Like I, 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 this is influenced from, but I always like the suspenders and yada yada from the era. And I don't know why social distortion just starts entering my mind. So therefore, that's a positive connotation. So I like the band Social Distortion. So uh, <laughs> Tyler, do you like this look? I do. I really appreciated the movie. Like we we have this uh, construct in our head of what heist movies look like now, and I loved the the almost simplicity of the heist in this movie and i also love that they did it in the that clothing with the hat like they they just wore their normal clothes they didn't try to cover their faces they it was just a thing it was like oh we're 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 robbing them now yeah, and I thought it was interesting. Like uh, everybody was very fun. Like I mean, Dix is like a hooligan. Like, uh, and everybody has a very bad reputation of him. But it's like the dude has a tie and a collared shirt and everything like that, uh, looking pretty respectable for uh, for a hooligan. Yeah, I think the only one that kind of had like the uh, the kind of worn down and tattered clothing was uh, the bartender. Was uh, Gus? Like he he kind of seemed to have had clothes of a man who had fallen on hard times. I liked Gus. Yeah, I did too. Uh, the ladies looked super elegant too. I thought Jean Hagen was uh, very charming, would definitely be the word. And, uh, you know, normally she might even stand out more. Uh, you know, the just the dresses and whatnot just seemed very, I don't know if it's just the glam of Hollywood, but by the way, did she say, I still did not catch second time around, like, why she came to him? Like, how did she know him in the beginning? Like, uh, she's pulling off her eyelashes. She's a mess, which even as a mess, she looks very put together. But uh, what? why did she come to Dix, especially in the early going? She wanted to stay there with him because she was, like, in between housing is what it seemed. But how did she did, – did we find out why she knows him? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, Not that, that, that – I... There was just a little piece of the beforehand that I kind of wanted. Like, she knows him enough to come to him, but what was their thing? I never caught that. Enter damsel in distress stage right. True. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So small, small thing. As I mentioned earlier, Marilyn Monroe and particularly that the dress that she had at the end of the movie as she's being questioned by the uh, detectives and stuff. Man, uh, she had presence. Uh, like I said, uh, Hagen was, was charming, but uh, Monroe was stunning. Apparently, uh, I think I read this correctly. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to find it uh, right now in terms of like the trivia. I think that they eventually ended up cutting that dress up and sending it pieces of it to the troops that's a morale booster sure yeah soundtrack this movie is way quieter than most i noticed but there is some movie particularly towards the end uh brian did you take much away on the score on this one 
Uh, not really. I actually enjoyed the peace and quiet for a little bit. I've been harping on a TV show here recently that utilizes soundtracks so well. It's always got something catchy and awesome going on. And uh, it was actually kind of nice to go the other direction just for uh, for a movie for once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know why. I normally would criticize a movie for being so empty, but I guess I was just so captivated by the dialogue and the characters. But I, I didn't notice it until the second time around. I was like, there's not a lot of music in this. Tyler, is that a good thing or a bad thing for you? For me, it was a good thing. I noticed it during the heist scene. This I also remember reading, too. There's only six minutes of score in the movie. Wow. It's even less than I realized then. It's in there until Dix walks into the bar where Gus works. It stops there and then it comes back at the end. Man, it is. Okay. So I thought it was quiet, but you're right. It's even quieter than I realized. So uh, the end, obviously, when you bring it back in is poignant because it hasn't been there at all, but it might have even been brought on too strong at the end, I thought. But uh, uh, interesting point. Wow. This is a very quiet movie. Yep. And it's weird. It's like I, I consistently praise movies for using music well. Like it's it's a bread and butter piece for me. I would praise this movie for using the lack of music well. Yeah, the the absence of such made this. You know, it added an air of suspense. Uh, it added an air of reflection of these guys and what they're about to do. And then while they're doing it, it's like oh. Oh, oh, and then when you have the uh, the alarms going off from down, you know, all around the block, that adds a, you know, oh, you gotta go, you gotta go. They know something's up. They're gonna be searching building. You know, it if music was in there, even with the, the the sirens and the bells, like sound effects ruled the center of this movie, not music. I, I keep bringing it up. I, I I hate to sound like a broken record. I was very much into the heist due to the lack of music. And I, I think that that whole set piece, which falls right in the middle of the movie, is the most important thing to kind of take away from the movie for me. Yeah, yeah. Now, look for this. Brian. My look for this moment isn't really a look for this. It's more of a... Um do your uh, diligence on on who ran the show uh one of the coolest points that i found about this movie when researching it was that director john houston he does the voice of gandalf the gray in the 1977 lord of the rings hobbit animated movies it was like a landmine i stepped on because uh i actually own these (laughs) and i was like oh snap that's him so that was it's not really a look for this in the in the film it's just the fact that he directed this and then goes on to uh be in my first visual undertaking of one of my favorite series of all time now fun trivia piece what's the body count of this movie tyler i'm doing math hold on this could this this could could, could, i think you're cheating he's counting He's yeah, that, counting. That, that's the... Stop counting cards. Yeah, stop counting cards. Just, <laughs> just, 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 this is lightning round. Uh, three. Okay, Brian, how many? What's the body count? Eight. Hey, are we counting dicks? Is dicks dead? Yeah, I am counting dicks. Sorry. Yeah, Emmerich, Brandon, and uh, Savelli and dicks. It's my favorite part of the show. Time to hand out some awards. Tyler, who's your MVP? Uh, cinematographer Harold Rawson. 
Oh, nice pick. I like you going a little bit deeper there. So way to give some credit to him. Uh, and as you mentioned, this was a beautiful movie. As, as I said at the, the top of the show, it's unfortunate that movies like Sunset Boulevard and some of these other movies came out this year. It just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Now, Brian, MVP. I gave my MVP to Gene Hagen. I think she actually shows the most depth and emotion of any character in this entire movie. Even her portrayal of taking a sleeping pill <laughs> yeah. seemed legit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I actually think she was the best actress, actor, at best anything in terms of acting prowess in this movie. Now, that's a really good pick. You're making me question mine. I'm going to go with Sam Jaffe. Uh, Sam Jaffe played Doc, and I thought that he was just so fun. I thought he had this wily, cunning quality to him and there was a sense of he had this joy of the heist that came through in him and that made me like the character a lot more but i definitely see your point with pagan's performance i felt like doc had a more likable role but uh and then obviously houston nobody mentioned houston houston should get a little bit of credit here as well so a small nod to him so um but yeah jaffe's my pick i i was torn between the cinematographer and houston and i ended up going with cinematography no, it's a great choice. Best supporting actor, Tyler. A lot to choose from here. I would actually give it to, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name, who played uh, Emmerich. That would be Louis Calhoun. Yes. I really liked the moment where he's talking to, to Brandon about how he feels trapped being broke and how he wished that he could have done other things. I thought that that was played very very well of course he then went on to make the the bad decision to double cross that did not work in his favor but uh i i don't know as as i've grown older and uh grown in my appreciation of movies i've really enjoyed the kind of like bad unlikable characters and i think that they end up being the most interesting so i was very much into the film whenever he was there isn't lewis calhern remarkably smooth Yes. Yeah, like, even as he's, like, supposed to be sweating, like, there's still a little bit like, yeah, this guy's up against the wall, but he's still pretty smooth. And he, he's balancing the mistress with where he does all this stuff with his wife while she's stuck in bed, and he he just balances a lot of the story. Yeah. Brian, best supporting actor. Uh, I went with Gus. I really like Gus. Uh, James Whitmore's character was very entertaining to me. He wasn't in it much. But it was one of those things that every time he was on screen, I was like, yeah, this guy. No, that's a great one. Uh, I actually was thinking about Lewis Calhoun, and I was thinking about Gene Hagen. Those have both been talked about, so I'm just going to take my second choice here. I'm going to go with Brad Dexter. He plays Bob uh, Branham, the private investigator, and he has a lot. He's a small role, but big, big presence. Sure. Totally. Yeah, I, I liked his tough guy personas. No, I, f- I feel like in this movie especially, it's it's a battle of the small parts. Yeah. Like, you have a couple people who have more major parts, but it's really a battle of the small parts. And I, I think there's a little bit about who you identify with. There's a little bit with the, who makes you kind of crack a smile a little bit, who you kind of root for. And with so many of the main characters having fairly hefty personality flaws it really is a battle of the smaller characters and who you're really like oh i'm glad nothing bad happened to blank that's a great point 
Uh, for sure. This was a tough one for Best Supporting. And Tyler, maybe also difficult. Who's your hidden gem? You know, I, I, I changed my answer, but in talking about the movie... I was going to go with the heist. I thought it was very well done, but I'm actually going to go with the screenplay. Okay, nice. It was an interesting one, right? It definitely was, and it as I was watching the movie, I was kind of remarking in my head how how simple it all is. Like the it when you break it down, the plot of the movie is very simple. Guy comes to them with a job, gets the crew, the job happens, it goes bad, they need to escape. Like when you think of it in like those those basic plot points, it's very, very simple. And yet it balances so much of the characters and so much of the we, we didn't even really bring up the fact that there's a corrupt police officer and there's a level of corruption that the police chief is trying to eliminate within the police department. So there's just this there, there's a lot going on in such a simple premise and yet you're able to kind of really follow all of it yeah 30 minutes into the movie you're still meeting people you're still getting set up and they're just laying the groundwork and all that stuff weaves together beautifully so i actually really like your pick there brian who's your hidden gem it's not really uh it's not really a person uh per se it's the interweaving they did with characters in this where they introduced a lot of people all at once uh, for the heist itself but in how they did it it made you care about at least a couple of them uh, whether it be uh, the demo guy with his kid on the way or you know dicks being kind of the um, the guy who's been uh, you know talked negatively about he's being boned you're pulling together a group of guys and anytime you have that sequence where you're pulling in your crew uh, whether it's Gone in 60 Seconds, and I am talking about the Nicolas Cage one, or, um, you know, uh, Italian Job, like, your characters. Like, you're pulling in the people that you're going to be like, oh, you're that guy, or you're that guy. I really liked how they tied it in with relatively little time to do it. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly wondering, what happened to that guy? What happened to that guy? And, I mean, they very abruptly kill the demo guy like you're it's like all of a sudden he's dead man that's a perfect compliment to tyler's pick i'm glad you followed up i i felt so many of those points and i didn't feel like i had time to go into that so i'm so glad that you i i, I echo all of that 100 percent. my hidden gem is gonna be john mcintyre the police commissioner hardy what a colorful character he was he reminded me from jameson from spider-man of just like this guy who's like commanding the room barking orders at people he's in charge and I really enjoyed his character. What a colorful character he was. Yeah. He had a lot of very uh, quotable lines, and he kind of was the one who drove the uh, the themes of the movie home as well. And uh, recast somebody. Now, this is an older movie, so we allowed a little bit of leeway in this. Usually we try and get to the era, the age, and all that stuff. But you know, with an older movie, we don't know the people involved back then as much. So who would you recast and... If you wanted to recast at the time, you can. But if you want to put somebody from today's time in there, who would it be, Tyler? For some reason, I the the actor that I didn't like as much was Sterling Hayden. Me too. Who are you? Who do you think you'd put in their shoes? Are you going older? Are you going old school or new school? Because I have mine. I knew I had my recast, but I don't don't know who I would have put in there. I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but I'm I'm putting Russell Crowe in it. Gotcha. Oh, okay. 
yeah, the, the LA Confidential parallel just was too much of a connection for me. I, once I saw the character and saw what I wanted to see in the character, I looked at Bud White from LA Confidential and saying like, I like this character more and I want, it, I want this character to be more like him. And then once I started doing that, I started to stamp Russell, Russell Crowe onto him. So uh, I could, once I got there, I couldn't get it out of my head. Gotcha. Joss Whedon has this thing he does in a lot of his TV shows or has done in a lot of his TV shows where he uh, does like a almost like a comedy noir episode where, you know, they're all playing different parts. Uh, They did it actually. uh, This isn't uh, Whedon. This was uh, Chris Carter for the X-Files where they do these kind of throwback episodes of the characters playing different parts and whatever. And about halfway through this movie, it struck me how much fun it would have been if Joss Whedon, during another of his uh, shows, which is very caper-heavy, had used the cast of Firefly in this movie. So the likes of Adam Baldwin being like corrupt Lieutenant Dietrich, Nathan Fillion as Dix, uh, Alan uh, uh, Turdyke as uh, Gus, like... You could have uh, Marina uh, Bakarin as Dahl, um, Sean Meyer as Kabi, Co- uh, Ron Glass as Doc. Like, I was just trying to put, I, I, I was literally in my head just taking cast members from Firefly and plugging him in to characters on this and having them doing this. You don't have an Angela, though, do you? Well, no, no, I, I, these are just some suggestions. No, okay. Uh, but... I didn't do a full cast. Literally trying to put this together in a way that I'm like, I could see them doing a spoof episode or short movie on Asphalt Jungle using these people who are literally bank robbers and heisters and, you know, they're they're kind of those good villains from Firefly in on a movie like this. Man, don't put Brian in a box. He's going to take these superlatives <laughs> and, and expand the world with them. Good job, though, man. That was an entertaining answer. Yeah, that's awesome. Best shot of the movie, Tyler. I wanted to go with the opening shots. Like, as I alluded to, I think it really set the uh, the mood. But I I just love the way that that heist, the entire heist itself was filmed. Oh, that's a great choice. Brian. Uh, my best shot in this was Dick Shoots Bob. Just an old school outdraw. Like, here, have a bag. Bam. Love that. Love yeah, I was going to say, he threw the bag in the air to distract him. I was like, well, that was nifty. Look, a distraction. Bang. That was really well shot. I rewound that one a couple of times. It was just like, man, look at the turn <laughs> there. That was really exciting. Like, you're like it's, hard to, it's hard to get action to some degree like that, uh, but in that close quarter setting. But I, I liked it. Yeah, I, great choice, yep. Brian. I didn't think about that one. I'll tell you one that I fell in love with, though, for my best shot was the plotting scene when they're at the table at Cobby's and Doc's back is to the camera. Again, they do that a lot, but the camera's at shoulder height, kind of that sitting height with uh, Gus, Dix, and Anthony all focused on Doc as he goes through the plan with them. And to me, it's just the plotting part of the movie. And I don't know if it's the architect in me who likes planning, but uh, and I just, I liked, I loved that. Here's what we're going to do scene. And with all the main players together in one scene too. So uh, magical moment and a nice shot too because the the background's all dark like a noir movie and then the focus is at the table with one light in the middle so good lighting good shot yeah for sure and it has inspired uh countless similar scenes yeah now best scene in the movie what about you tyler i, I was thinking about the heist but 
that that might be my favorite shot, but maybe my favorite scene is the the scene where they end up killing Branham. Oh, okay, yeah. So the, so the where the jewels will not be exchanged for money after all, and then things break down. The whole scene there. Yeah, I, I thought that that was was all well done. As much as I, I, I don't know. I equally remember both. I, I remember the heist for how it was shot, and I just remember the the suddenness and the chaos of the 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 jewels. Yeah, so your best scene is Brian's best shot. Brian, what is your best scene? My best scene is Dietrich just working over Cobby. Like, he warned him ahead of time. He's like, you can't hold up to this stuff. And, I mean, I'm telling you, that guy folded quick. Like, he had him nailed. And it was just, I was watching it, and I was like, oh, man, this guy's going to last two seconds. He's crying on this dude's sleeve. Oh, my God. And, you know, in a movie that they don't really go much into Dietrich outside of, uh, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm a dirty cop. Oh, I'm in jail. <laughs> like, it was really his, like, one, it was like his one thing was beating the crap out of this guy in a way that wouldn't necessarily be seen. I mean, he, all he did was smack him around a little bit. And the guy was like, ah, more whiskey, I'll talk. And I'm just like, dude. Law, you're up, champ. Not a big part, but an important part, as you pointed out, too. And those were yeah. those were some good hits, too. Yeah. <laughs> Circa WCW 1993. So Tyler's best uh, scene was Brian's best. Sh- sorry, Brian's best shot. And Brian and my best scene is going to be Tyler's best shot. So I'm going to go with the uh, the heist for me. I just like as Dix is watching the alarm the cracking of the safe. It's a tense moment. I just, to me, that's one of the most exciting parts of the movie. I loved it. I want to be clear that my best shot was the shot. <laughs> like that was a good shot. That was literally a good shot. Yeah. Change one thing, Tyler. It's honestly something that can't be helped. I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more for the ladies to do, but I, I do understand the time and, uh, 1950 yeah yeah the the other extenuating factors but it even factoring in like marilyn monroe wasn't famous she probably would have had more to do if it had come a couple years even later in her career just just giving them a little bit more to do especially doll i think she uh she she kind of got left out and the the actress did she did great with what she had but i would have liked to have seen more because she did bring a lot of energy Valid point, and that's why Brian made her his MVP. <laughs> Brian, change one thing. You know, um, I was going to say at the very beginning of this, when I first wrote out my superlatives, I was going to say that I'm not really qualified to change anything in a movie this old just because I didn't want to tinker with things. Yes, you have the credentials. You're a host of a podcast. You can do it. <laughs> but after uh, after we talked about it, I realized, man, Dix's gunshot wound just really irritated me. Like, the more I thought about it and the more I talked about it... <laughs> well, I knew that was what you are going to come back to. Yeah, the more I talked about it, the more I thought about it, I was like, man, that was crap. Like, what is this? So I'm going with, with the... Uh, it, it was like a Willy Wonka gunshot wound. It's like, now nah, you're good. Just kidding. Bleed out. I was wondering if you hated something more than that as you were talking about. I was like, man, this feels like Brian's changed one thing. (laughs) (laughs) He must really hate something else. No, it it wasn't. It wasn't my change one thing until I started talking about it. 
Yeah, I realized how much it irked me after we talked about it initially. <laughs> yeah, my change one thing is going to be this is a this is a game changer and it changes the whole crime doesn't pay meaning of the story. But I kind of am a sucker for a happy ending. What if Dix doesn't die in Kentucky and uh, gets patched up enough? Like Brian said, maybe it's maybe it's a, just a flesh wound and he'll make it okay. And uh, he and Dahl can hang out in Kentucky, raise horses, and have a happy ending. And everybody else dies. Well, it's it's interesting that that you thought that that could you know that was something you could have changed because this did get turned into a TV show, but it didn't pick up any of thing. It didn't pick up any of the characters. It didn't pick up in the plot. It was like a in name only television show. So that could have been the place where they could have rectified that and picked up their story together. So they had a chance. Like I said, just add one little scene of somebody runs out from the barn, takes him inside, and they get him fixed up, and he wakes up the next day, and he's looking at a horse all pleased with himself. Just toying with something right now that if this movie was made today, uh, you could say same actors, different actors, however you want to do it. If this movie was made today, um, in terms of screenplay, like, what if... I'm going to go Marvel on this. Marvel, what if... What if Marilyn Monroe's character, right as uh, the dude's about to kill himself, you hear like a commotion in the other room. She rolls in with like a, a Luger with a silencer on it. All the cops are dead. And she's like, time to get out of here, hun. <laughs> and like uh, all, all, all along like that whole like, oh, I can wear my bathing suit and da, 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 like stone cold. Like, you could add some twists in this now, like if you were to remake this movie now. Brian wants an angry gold digger of Marilyn Monroe. He wants her to come in. Nobody with this is with my mail ticket. She goes, oh, oh, honey, you went about this all the wrong way. Time to listen to me now. That was wild. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I definitely think that, that if that moment did exist, it would get a cheer. Brian, why don't you take this one first? Best quote. So Jess and I got really excited while watching this to make uh, Here's How. To be our new cheers. So when he's pouring a drink for uh, Higgins' character, she she just like randomly cheers and goes, here's how, and takes a shot. And we were like, that's awesome. That means absolutely nothing, really, except for maybe a latter explanation to why you're so trashed. Here's how. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. There's a lot of slangy stuff in this movie, too, whether it's like uh, they call it guns heaters or they call uh, dicks a hooligan or we talked about don't bone me. Like there's a lot of jargon in this movie to make for some interesting quotes. I feel like if I could get a book of past slang and you could even do it like, uh, you know, like when you do coin collecting and it says like 1901 to 1931. I would love to have like an encyclopedia of slang throughout the years. I would totally bring some of the stuff back. Oh, totally. Now, Tyler, what's your best quote? One's a fun little character moment and one's a, uh, an actual quote that like I love from movies like this. Uh, the first one's from uh Kabi where he says, here's to the drink habit. It's the only one that I got that don't get me into trouble. And then, uh, the other one's doc where he, uh, Experiences taught me never to trust a policeman. Just when you think one's all right, he turns legit. Which totally is a foreshadowing. I, I just love lines like like that is like such like a crime film noir line that just makes me giddy. Well, that's totally what happened. So 
Or Archer. Thanks, Frankie Foreshadow. Everybody gets away with it if Cobb. If the, every, everybody gets away with it if Cobby doesn't trust that cop. So yeah, mine's gonna go for May Emmerich and Alonzo Emmerich talking to each other. May sets him up by just saying like, "Oh, Lon, when I think of all those awful people you come in contact with, downright criminals, I get scared." And Alonzo's like knows that he's in trouble for like being framed for like not framed. Sorry, he knows that he's been pegged to this murder and uh, that's the robbery as well. And so he's like zoned out and he goes, oh, there's nothing so different about them. After all, crime's only a left-handed form of human endeavor. And uh, I just, that was such a poignant moment of him realizing. Classy. I, yeah. I just, again, he's so smooth. So, yeah. That's the, what, a, what, a, what a smooth way of saying like, oh boy, I really stepped in it now. <laughs> so, I did it. It was me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, I did it. It was me. Yeah. Or the equivalent of uh, Liar Liar when Jimmy Carey gets out of the elevator uh, after farting. Is, it was me! <laughs> um, uh, Tyler, do you want to tell people one more time about For Real? Uh, yeah, so For Real is uh, my podcast currently right now. You can find it on Spotify. We're looking to be on uh, Apple Podcasts soon. It's just myself and my uh, my uh, co-host Greg. We uh, each week dive into things that are trending in the industry, current news, and just kind of discuss what it all means and what it means for the big picture of this thing that we love so much: the movies. What does it all mean, Basil? <laughs> all right, time to rate this movie on a five-star scale, half-star intervals. Tyler, what would you rate the Asphalt Jungle from 1950? I think I'd end up giving it a four and a half. Nice. It is definitely a uh, a film that was underappreciated in its time, and it just, like like I was talking about with like the Lighthouse. I love black and white cinematography. I think it adds so much, and there's so much atmosphere in this movie. I love heist mo- like that. It just ticks off so many of my boxes that I. Yeah, I'm I'm very glad that I made that blind impulse buy and ended up picking this up and watching it. Yeah. So Brian, on a five star scale, half star intervals, what would you rate the Asphalt Jungle? It's funny because just like talking out movies with people, you especially first time seeing movies, you either gain or diminish appreciation based on others opinions and i don't mean that in terms of like your rating i just mean it in terms of as you hash out the movie and you really talk about it it really forces you to think more about something and i was really ready to give this movie a three and i was going to give this movie a three not out of any spite or because it would be one of my lowest ratings for our podcast yeah yeah i know um I was ready to give it a three because I was like, okay, watched it. You know, it's a thing. It was entertaining. It was fine. Didn't groundbreak me in any way, shape, or form. So I'm just going to give it a middle-of-the-road thing, and I'm really determined not to give uh, decimal places. So I was like, I was going to give it a three. I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm going to give it a four now just because I, I, I feel like Talking it out with you guys has enriched it to a point where there are th- some things I hadn't thought about before. There's some interesting pieces that I think really give the film credit that uh, 
you know, it's, it's like a back of the palette kind of piece. And yeah, I think I'm going to give this guy a four. I'm going to go with a four as well. And I almost went 4.5 because I just enjoy the darn characters so much. And there's so much of it I, I loved. But there's moments of, like what I said about how, who is this character of Dahl and where does she come from? And the ending is a little bit of a downer for me. And so when I start to make my little improvements list, it does start to kind of add up enough to the point where I sit there and I go, I have to bring it down to a four, but it's a really good four. And I'm, I, I'm almost in doing so. I, I'm, I was teeter-tottering between 4.5. So I think I'm going to hold my grounds, though, and stay at a four today. So I'm, I'm at a four as well. But I was close to a 4.5. Jo- join me, Russell. Join me. <laughs> Even just talking about it now, I'm going 4.5. I'm cutting that in later. I'm going. I'm, I'm going 4.5. This is this Welcome. is this is the springboard of the heist genre, and it's very influential. And despite having some issues, it it, it is. It, I'm going 4.5. I went up one whole star just because we talked about it. Yeah. So uh, I'm sticking with my forfeit. Yeah. You, you, you won me over, Tyler. You told me to join you, and I did. <laughs> well and it, it's, it's like, kind of oh, like how when God. we were when we were talking about sterling hayden's character i didn't really care for him you know in his acting style but kind of talking it out and about what kind of character it was i i was kind of the same way where he he was still my my replace an actor but it was almost kind of begrudgingly again yeah so Brian, you want to help me pick a movie for next time real quick? Absolutely. So it's Oscar season, so we have three movies here that are Oscar winners. We have Fargo from 1996. Jerry Lundgren's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling the persistence police work of the quiet pregnant Marge Gunderson. Option two, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975. A criminal pleads insanity and is admitted to a mental institution where he rebels against an oppressive nurse and rallies up the scared patients. And option number three, Juno from 2007. Faced with an unplanned pregnancy, an offbeat young woman makes an unusual decision regarding her unborn child. I'm going to have to go with uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Here's Johnny. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Tyler, for coming on. This was a great show, man. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, and uh, I, I look forward to listening to For Real. So, And Brian, thank thank you as always, man. Always, always a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us, subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Retro Movie Roundtable at Yahoo.com. We have a Patreon page up, and if you want to go check us out at our Patreon page, you can help support the show. Podcasting is not free, and we, we appreciate your support. You can get some bonus materials like our beta episodes and a few other unmentionables that uh, are out there as well. So, as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? You shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs>